Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we're going to continue exploring the scriptures that help us to understand, one, the gospel of the kingdom, and two, the difference between the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached while he was here 2,000 years on the earth at his first coming as compared to the gospel of grace that Jesus preached after Israel turned their back on the offer of the kingdom. So these two gospels, quite different. There are similarities, but there are the differences that I want us to understand here, that the uh, the differences here are between the acceptance of the kingdom and the denial of the kingdom. The kingdom was offered to Israel, to no one else. And when Israel denied that, rejected it, and Jesus basically um, postponed, put on hold the offer of the kingdom, he then turned to what's called the gospel of grace and offered it to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. So that, again, is another one of the significant differences between the gospel of the kingdom, specifically to Israel, with the blessings to Israel. And I guess I should point out here that that's the key uh focus is that it's the offer to to Israel with the blessings to Israel. But if they had accepted that kingdom, that would have then been expanded out ultimately to the Gentiles during that first century, 2,000 years ago, and going forward. So I want to make sure we understand that it was an all ultimately an all-encompassing gospel to uh, share with the world. Because remember, way, way back in the beginning when Abraham was pulled out of Ur of the Chaldees by the Lord through faith, uh, the Lord's intention was that he was going to show the idol-worshiping world that they could live with Creator God as their God, as their King, with all of the blessings as long as they would obey his commands and his statutes and his ordinances. So the world would have been blessed mightily in the first century if Israel had accepted Jesus as the promised Messiah, but they did not. So Jesus then turned to the gospel of grace, uh, and that, of course, includes the other significant difference, and that is uh, that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death and burial for the forgiveness of our sins, the resurrection for the promise of eternal life through his resurrection. That was nowhere in sight, nowhere in view, nowhere talked about in the gospel of the kingdom because there was no need for it. Jesus was there physically. The promise of the kingdom would be on the earth in their Adamic bodies, in their um, natural bodies, not in a glorified body, which is what the church has to look forward to. So let's uh, let's jump back uh, into Matthew, which is where we finished the last time. We were in Matthew chapter 3. And we were talking, first of all, in Matthew 3, 1 through 3, where John the Baptist is now on the scene approximately six months before Jesus um, 
started his ministry. And, of course, John did that six months early because that was his role. He was to announce the coming of the Messiah to the world. And he was baptizing people in the Jordan in water for the um, remission of their sins. But it took Jesus to come along and baptize them with the Holy Spirit before they would have the opportunity for eternal life. So let's um, go back to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And the key, the key verse here in those first three verses that I want to remind us of is where he says in, in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the kingdom that was in heaven in the form of Jesus Christ, the triune Godhead, was now going to come down to the earth uh, in the form of the, the incarnate Jesus Christ, uh, the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So in effect, God was going to come down to the earth in the form of a man called Jesus Christ, and he would be the promised Messiah, the promised prophet, the promised king, the promised conqueror that the Old Testament uh, prophesied that the Israelites at the time of Matthew, we're looking forward to this man to come and to run out the Romans and to reestablish the greatness of the uh, Davidic empire, uh, which was in existence a thousand years before under King David. But Jesus was now in the lineage of David. Uh, They knew that whoever this Messiah would be that would come was rightfully heir to the throne of David. That was made clear throughout the Old Testament. So he was saying it's at hand because Jesus is coming. He's going to come here and do it. Then we went down to uh, verses 7 and 8 where you see um, the fallacy, if you will, that's that's uh, part of the water baptism, that people can come, they can get water baptized and think that that's all they need to do. And uh, John the Baptist is pointing that out here in verse 7 when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism. Knowing that these people were self-righteous, they had a um, a heart that did not seek after this uh, coming Messiah. They were not awaiting a Messiah. And it says uh, when they came for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And of course, this is his. This is John the Baptist relating what was promised, what was prophesied in the Old Testament that there would be a time of tribulation, a time of judgment of the unrighteous, before the king would set up his kingdom, uh, which Jesus would have done at that point if they had accepted him. And they were coming, thinking that if I get baptized by John, then I will be part of the kingdom, and I'm I'm good to go without any intention of changing their lifestyle, changing their their heart, if you will. They still had a heart of stone relative to their belief in a coming Messiah. So he calls them a brood of vipers. He's very, very upfront about that. And then he expands on it, and this is where we um, finished up last time, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, and it says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then you think, well, what is the difference, this Holy Spirit and fire? Well, he explains himself in verse 12. His winnowing fork, and this is talking about Jesus, 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And we, we went to some length in our last program to point out that normally when you're in the threshing floor, back when, when this was done uh, manually, the idea of the winnowing fork was to take a fork full of the uh, wheat, throw it up in the air, and let the wind catch the chafe, uh, the shells and so forth, and blow it away, and the heavier wheat would fall back to the floor. And, of course, the chafe would just um, blow off somewhere and would biodegrade in the ground over a period of time. But here it's made clear that this um, residue, if you will, and here he's talking about the unrighteous, will be burned up, not only just burned up in a fire, but an unquenchable fire. So this is a direct relationship, as we mentioned last time. This is a direct relationship to the lake of fire, which is the judgment of the unrighteous at the end of the millennial kingdom, right before uh, eternity comes into uh, existence with the renewed, the new heavens and the new earth. So this is a very clear distinction here of making it clear to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and to all those who were listening that the one who's coming after John the Baptist is going to baptize you spiritually. It's a spiritual change of heart. It's not the water baptism that saves you. It is the baptism of the Spirit, which happens uh, at the same time for a Christian. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit immediately comes into your life, and, and your life is changed. It is baptized with the Spirit that you, you die symbolically by going under the water. You die to self, and when you rise up, you're resurrected to a new creation. And that is all part of the spiritual baptism symbolized by the water baptism. So he's, he's saying that there's going to be a tribulation, a judgment time for these unrighteous people, and they need to be aware of this and take, uh, take that into account as they go forward because when the king comes, He's going to bring these judgments about, and if you are unrighteous, you will not enter his kingdom. So let's let's begin to uh, see what the scriptures say about this kingdom that Jesus is going to bring in. And there are uh, several places we could go in the Old Testament. A lot of people go to Isaiah, but I'd like to go to another place that we're not as familiar with that tells us the same thing, uh, because by the way... <laughs> There are forty over 40 different authors of the New Testament. Excuse me, there are four, over 40 authors of the entire Bible. Over 40 different authors, but they are all guided by the same Holy Spirit. So as we, we learn in Peter and other places that man did not write based on what he was feeling and what he wanted to get across. They wrote based on the guiding of the Holy Spirit. So whether it's Isaiah or, in this particular case, the minor prophet of Micah, the minor prophet book, I should say. The uh, 12 minor prophets were not minor because of um, their intellect or what they were sharing with the people uh, from God through the Bible, but they simply wrote short books, and that's why they're called minor, uh, for no other reason than that. So let's go to the book of Micah. And it'll uh, take you a little while. If you find Jonah, you'll get into Micah in the next chapter. We want to go to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. 
and we're going to read the first eight verses of Micah chapter 4. So listen to this, because this is one of the better descriptions, uh, in, uh, inclusive descriptions of the kingdom that Jesus would have brought in had they accepted him 2,000 years ago. And by the way, this same description will be applicable as the description of the future millennial kingdom. They, they rejected the kingdom the first time. They will accept it the second time. So everything we're reading here could have happened 2,000 years ago, but will happen, uh, and I pray, in the near future. Micah chapter 4, verse 1, And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. And this is a description of the kingdom with Jerusalem as the capital city and the temple mount as the throne, the location of the throne and what would be the fourth temple as we go forward. The fourth temple. You have the Solomonic temple that was built in 961 B.C., that was destroyed in 586. Seventy years later, the uh, temple that Zerubbabel uh, built the basic structure for and King Herod greatly adorned and ex- expanded in Jerusalem at the end of um, the period before Christ. And then, of course, in 70 A.D., that temple was destroyed. Then there's going to be a third temple that will be built during the tribulation period yet to come. Uh, where the Antichrist will allow Israel, because he has entered into a peace covenant with Israel, uh, he will allow Israel to build the third temple. It'll be a small temple, the Bible tells us in uh, Revelation 11, but nevertheless it'll be a temple in which they will sacrifice in unbelief, because they will not be worshiping Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. They will be worshiping their God, which is what they did before, but now that Jesus Christ has come, they should be worshiping him, and they refuse to. So this temple that's built in unbelief will be destroyed at some point during the tribulation period, and then when Jesus comes back to the earth, there will be the fourth magnificent, much, much more magnificent, much, much bigger than King Herod's, which at the time was one of the seven wonders of the world. It'll be much bigger, much more splendid than that, and that's where Jesus Christ will sit during the millennial kingdom. So this is what's being described here in verse 1 of Micah chapter 4, that it'll be a the temple mount as we understand it today, Mount Moriah, will be tectonically lifted up, um, and all the mountains around it, there are seven hills, if you will, in down in, in greater Jerusalem. They will be lowered down, and the, and the mount on which the temple will sit will be raised up so that it will be chief among the mountains, raised above all the hills. And the peoples, this is talking about Jew and Gentile, the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion, which is another reference to to uh, Jerusalem, 
For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he, referring to Jesus, he's now as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will judge, verse 3, between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, verse 5, though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Verse 6, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast. Even those whom I have afflicted, I will make a lame, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, the tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. So he's talking there about how the dominion that they had enjoyed back during the time of King David and King Solomon when the geographic expanse of of Israel was at its greatest. It went all the way up to the Euphrates River and then down along the Jordan over into the, the um, Golan Heights and a little bit beyond that and all the way down to the... Um, the wadi of Egypt down in the Sinai. So it was at its greatest expanse. It'll return to that again, and they will have dominion over that. And the Bible also promises, in fact, that's in Deuteronomy 28.1. That's not in our worksheet. But if you go to Deuteronomy 28.1, it tells you that if they obey God, which they will do here, they will be chief among the nations. They will be feared by the nations of the world. And I'm talking about Israel. So it's a, it's a wonderful time. Uh, particularly for Israel um, during the millennial kingdom when this is talking about, and this is prophesied. And remember, Micah, this minor prophet book of Micah, was written uh, seven centuries, in the, in the seventh century before Christ. So this is how gracious God is in telling the people, here's what you have to look forward to when the Messiah comes that's promised to you to set up his kingdom. Listen to him, believe him, and all of this will be yours. But, of course, we're finding out as we go through this that they are not uh, willing to do that. So we're going to um, look a little bit more about what the Old Testament says. Uh, we're going to actually go to the book of Acts, but it's going to refer back to the Old Testament uh, just for a brief uh, insight into that. And then we're going to get into the mechanics of the kingdom and what Jesus told his apostles to tell the people about this kingdom that he's offering, this gospel of the kingdom. But as we always do, we want to transition now over to our Q&A time, and we have been looking at a question, who is not going to be included in the rapture of the church? And we've been making the point that there are a lot of uh, uncountable number of people who have lived since Adam and Eve, which would now be 6,000 years ago, according to the Bible, um, that have been counted as righteous, that will um, be, um, many of these will be in, a, in uh, glorified bodies, that we as the church, you and I, 
will see Adam and Eve. We will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, the Bible actually says uh, people will sit down to the table in the kingdom, this promised kingdom yet to come, will sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you imagine that? All the great uh, figures of the Old Testament that we've read about that were um, counted as righteous by the Lord, we will see them again in their glorified bodies. And we were going through that. In fact, let me reiterate, uh, like I did last time, the list of people who are considered righteous that are not caught up in the rapture of the church. Because remember, the rapture of the church only involves the righteous during the church age. And of the 6,000 years that has already passed since Adam and Eve and the, the, uh, the week of creation in Genesis 1, there's been 6,000 years. The church has only been a reality for 2,000 years. And this was when Israel rejected Jesus as their promised king. He then changed to offer uh, grace, salvation, uh, and eternal life through his death, burial, and resurrection to the world. And that is basically the church. So, Only the people that have lived in the last 2,000 years that have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior would be caught up in the rapture. But there are many, many righteous people that were counted as righteous before the church, and there will be a lot of people that are counted as righteous after the church is taken back to heaven. And I want to touch on each one of those groups. So we we have the Old Testament saints, which we'll talk uh, again today as we started in our last program. Then you have the tribulation saints that obviously um, uh, are considered righteous during the tribulation. And then you have the Jews and the Gentiles who are on the earth who make it through the entire seven-year tribulation. They will be judged, the Jews and the Gentiles, separately, two different groups. And out of that judgment, the righteous Jews and the righteous Gentiles will be allowed to populate the earth during the thousand-year millennial kingdom. So they are righteous as well. So we're going to, other than the church, we're talking about the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, and the Jews and the Gentiles who enter the kingdom. So we had finished up our program last time talking about the Old Testament saints, and we had been uh, in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, to make the point, what is, how do you delineate, how do you identify an Old Testament saint. And an Old Testament saint was obviously a person that when they died, they uh, were righteous. The Holy Spirit would come on you, and we we spent a lot of time in our last um, Q&A session uh, with a question from Rich talking about the, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as opposed to the current New Testament church age and how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament, he would come on someone who was righteous, but when they turned to iniquity, he would leave them. And we had had examples of that. And then we talked about how that would happen again during the tribulation period when the Old Testament uh, economy, if you will, uh, will will be um, instituted again. And we learned that in, in uh, John, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 24, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached again to the whole world, and that'll be during the tribulation period. So 
the way it was delineated was when the church age began, it was the, the, the most common um, distinction of the church compared to the Old Testament saints was that the Holy Spirit not only would come on you uh, in your righteousness, but would come in you permanently. He would dwell with you forever. We know that from the uh, upper room discourse when John recorded what Jesus told the apostles about the church age, how the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, uh, I believe it's verse 17, would say the Holy Spirit would come on you and would be with you forever. So before um, Jesus was glorified back to heaven, and that's what we learned in John chapter 7, verses 38 and, nine, 38 and 39, that before Jesus was glorified back to heaven at the end of his ministry, 40 days after he had been resurrected, so this is described in Acts chapter 1, he goes back to heaven and is glorified that everybody who died before that day is an Old Testament saint. Now, what that means is that they, um, their, their um, spirit would not be matched up with their body until the end of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation. We'll talk about that here uh, in a few moments in, with the book of Daniel, Jan, Daniel chapter 12. So these are considered Old Testament saints. For instance, John the Baptist. I believe we mentioned this in our last program. John the Baptist is an Old Testament saint because he died before Jesus was was glorified. So I want to um, dwell on a couple of points here to clarify this because you may be scratching your head right now, figuratively or literally. <laughs> what in the world are we talking about here, the difference between these Old Testament and New Testament saints um, with Old Testament saints being in the um, the New Testament? Let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. So you got first and second Corinthians, then you have Galatians, and then you've got Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we want to look at verse 8 going forward. Verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 4. It says in verse 8, Therefore it says, When he, and this is describing Jesus, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth, and uh, he who descended is himself also, he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. What in the world is that talking about? When Jesus was crucified and buried. It says that he went down into what we call Hades, which is where everybody's spirit was before Jesus came along. When you died, your spirit went to Hades. You went on one side. If you were unrighteous, you went on the other side called Abraham's bosom if you were counted as righteous. And of course, you know, Lazarus and the rich man in the book of Luke is a great example of that. And there was a chasm in between. And that's where you were, and you were waiting on a special event. And we'll talk about that when we get to Hebrews, um, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, you're waiting on a special event, and that was the coming of Jesus. 
So we want to we want to dwell on that, uh, particularly in our next Q and A. Uh, so remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.